Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of November 20th, 2022. Happy Turkey Day week for any of the other U.S. listeners out there. I'll say I do love me some pumpkin pie ice cream. That stuff is super delicious. Actual pumpkin pie always seems to smell better than it tastes, but pumpkin pie ice cream never seems to disappoint me, even the grocery store brand. So a good call to action is to reach out If you're listening to this, reach out to one past guest of this podcast. Literally, just find one that you want to talk to. I can pretty well guarantee that most of them will want to chat. You will need to make sure there is a good outreach. Why is it beneficial to to them to have the conversation? Think about that for a second instead of what I want from you. You know, if I said to you, I want this stuff from you instead of I want to have a conversation you're going to be much less likely to respond. But most of the past guests are super excited about connecting with folks doing data mesh. So get out there and say hi to some of the amazing people that have been on here. So on Monday, we've got episode 157, Getting Practical with Data Privacy, an interview with Catherine Jarmel, aka KJams. So this was a really fun conversation about a fascinating topic. I I legitimately didn't know just about anything about, or at least I didn't coming in. There's a reason KJAMS is writing a book on applying privacy to data. We poked at a lot of things about how we can be more ethical as well in our data usage. There's already tooling and techniques out there around privacy, and with good privacy practices, you might actually be able to unlock additional use cases you couldn't get away with in the past. So you can get to that that bigger value, right? These are things that, that it just would have been too fraught with risk to do or unethical to do. But if you apply these privacy technologies, you might be able to do amazing new things that you couldn't have in the past. And the technologies exist. It's not just theoretical. So interesting topics there. On Wednesday, it's episode 158, Jumax Corner number 10, Blazing Trails, Not Blazing Saddles, Setting Yourself Up for Success. This is the third part of my most recent interview with Jumax. We talked about what can we do now with the tooling still lacking for us in a lot of ways to move away from that data pipeline, the forever layering approaches where, where can we make good progress? And she pleads in it to not forgo interoperability. Really make sure you are prepared for that in the mid to longer term, at least, as that interoperability is where a lot, maybe most of the value of your data mesh implementation will come from. Remember, a lot of people have said this, execs rarely ask questions about single domains. So crossing data from multiple domains is is super crucial. 
On Friday, we have episode 159, focusing on the problems and business at hand in your data tool selection process, an interview with Brandon Bidell. So I asked Brandon on after hearing him on the Data Engineering Podcast. He had a phenomenal episode on there, so I wanted to learn more. He shares more wisdom about how to head down a good path in your tooling selection by focusing on the problems and especially the business problems you're trying to solve. What are you actually trying to do? It's not just about cool tech. It's not cool toys. It's about what would doing this actually unlock for us? You know, that old Ala Hale quote, what would having this unlock for you? So yes, tech can mean some pretty cool things, but we, we need to focus on that why when selecting. Does this make business sense for the now and the potential future? And even the, the idea of what happens if this is more successful than we're expecting? Are we painting ourselves into a corner? Is this going to actually be a problem and the unit economics actually get really poor? Like thinking about that stuff ahead of time. He's, he's got a lot of great little frameworks and approaches and, and things to, to really think about there. So with all of that, on to the extended summaries for the two regular episode interviews for the week. Extended summary for episode 157, Getting Practical with Data Privacy, an interview with Catherine Jarmel, aka KJAMS. So in this episode, I interviewed Catherine, or, or KJAMS, who is the principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks. So Catherine showed how she first started uh, looking into data privacy. She was doing natural language processing, you know, NLP, and was working with lots of customer data that was supposedly clean and anonymized. But surprise, surprise, it wasn't, right? It raised a red flag for her, as that can mean working with some problematic things, right? So she went looking for solutions and discovered that there was a lot of existing privacy technologies. And even more now, you know, she started that multiple years ago. So we can look at first order privacy questions like how do we actually anonymize data or bigger and more philosophical questions about how do we prevent harm on society with from our technical work and how does privacy play into that? While privacy can be a bit of a nebulous top, topic, Catherine recommends starting from the gut check. Basically, would what you you know, what would you be comfortable with? Would you be okay with your chat history being shared with others? What about your location at all times? If no, look to prevent that from happening in what you are working on. But it's important to also use a multicultural lens on what is acceptable, as what's okay in the US, or at least tolerated, might not be in Europe. And this, of course, can extend to fines from GDPR, but also reputation. Think about how data can be misused and look to prevent that. One note from my point of view is see episode 143, uh, Mesh Musings, about, for some more about data ethics and what we can do to prevent misuse. Given that privacy is very contextual to the in individual, 
KJMs believes it's far too often that when we translate data privacy decisions to code, we lose the context. And part of that is making privacy decisions uh, and options obvious. If you are collecting people's locations, are you giving them an easy ability to see why or opt out? It's very easy for people to feel tricked, especially, you know, nobody really reads the EULA, right? The end user license agreement. Catherine gave an example of how digital native people, mostly teenagers on Instagram about 10 years ago, had different accounts called Finsta accounts or fake Instagram accounts with different levels of anonymity and privacy to help better navigate the opaque privacy settings and share data more granular with who they wanted, gave them an ability to control how they were sharing their data and with whom. But most people aren't capable or willing to do something like that. To drive trust, KGMs believes we need to show people that like what they are getting from sharing their data. What is the benefit? Then they can make an informed decision about should they share that data with you or not. But privacy settings are often opaque at best. She believes that companies leaning into privacy conversations with users will create a better relationship with customers. How are you delivering value back to customers from them sharing data with you? And increasing privacy doesn't mean you have to give up on the value of your data either. A few privacy techniques where tooling already exists, Catherine mentioned, are pseudo-anonymization, tokenization masking, uh, and format-preserving encryption. She recommends these as some basics to protect PII, or personally identifiable information, or other sensitive information. These are just basic stakes information, you know, these are just basic stakes information security best, maybe not even just not bad practices, right? So uh, these are at least practices you should be doing and (laughs) you're not even on the cutting edge if you're doing these. Then when you want to look to potentially layer additional technology on top, like differential privacy, we can even leave data where it is to do federated analytics and federated learning, which has implementation implications, obviously, for data mesh and machine learning. When looking at the value of privacy, it can be tough to drive in to drive, drive buy-in internally. People assume cost with no additional value. But according to KJAMS, you can look at the privacy utility trade-off. How can we simultaneously maximize privacy while still not inhibiting the work we need to do? And how, in data mesh, do we actually find those sweet spots? Catherine believes it's through the data owners, you know, giving those data owners the ability to tune privacy. Think of it as kind of knobs to the specifics of the the need or the use case. That's part of doing federated computational governance through a self-service platform, after all. Try saying that three times fast. (laughs) KJAMS believes it's easiest, at least with current technology, to apply privacy at the data source. But when thinking about something like data mesh, there may be additional challenges like data from domain A and domain C should not be combined. So we are still learning how to do data privacy well in a federated environment. One quick note for me, Jesse Paquette covered this in 
about how doing this with healthcare data in episode 10, where certain anonymized information could be joined with other anonymized information to make it personally identifiable. Uh, Many people are saving those kind of tricky use cases for later or not trying to automate privacy and cordoning off those data products except by request. So it's an interesting thing to take a look at. When leveraged well, Catherine believes data privacy technology can actually add more value. If a data producer is not sure how data consumers will use sensitive data, they're very unlikely to share it. But if they can lock down data in certain ways, but still give these people access, then it is a win-win. The data consumers get access to information they wouldn't have gotten otherwise, and data producers can still sleep at night. It can turn a no to a yes. Sarita Baxt mentioned something similar in episode 52. And you can also get past legal and regulatory barriers if you do data privacy right. Your legal and regulatory people want to say yes to use cases, right? So give them the ability to turn their no to a yes. Offer up potential privacy concerning offsets, right? Say only using the data in a sandbox to start to see where their issues really lie, right? So that you're not coming to them to, do I have approval or don't I? It's, here's what I'm trying to do. How can we get there? And for KJAMs and myself as well, the desire to remove the people from the technology aspects of things like privacy ends up being kind of silly. We can't make decisions only via the tech. You know, automated decisions in this is is probably not going to work that well. Stop trying to replace conversations with technical solutions. Sometimes people just need to get to, you know, collaborate and get to where we need to go. Don't make it a yes or no decision for someone like legal. Exchange context and look to collaborate on a positive outcome instead of can I do this? And don't, you know, try to stay away from the ask for permission or ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission, right? That's not a great way to look at privacy. (laughs) Catherine gave a good overview of how to move up the privacy ladder about 47 minutes into the interview. So that's going to be about 55 minutes into the overall episode. How do you move from not so great to okay to pretty good to good with your data privacy? You know, but we used meh to eh to heh to ha because I just started it with meh to eh, right? So uh, privacy isn't all or nothing and you can improve and iterate. So some quick tidbits to wrap up. Some second layer privacy enhancing techniques that uh, KJAMs had mentioned were differential privacy, data minimization, federated analytics, federated learning, distributed querying, encrypted computation, and secure multi-party computation. So I think if you want to learn more about those things, they're in the show notes, so you can just kind of search through those and, and uh, learn more. You probably won't get your privacy perfect on your first try. That's okay. Look to prevent regulatory and compliance issues, but much like all aspects of data mesh, try, learn, and iterate. Think about what you can and cannot show in a data catalog about potentially sensitive data. You can share descriptive statistics and information about use cases without exposing the sensitive data until you know a new use case is allowed or ethical. Look to share as much information as you can where appropriate, instead of locking down anything related to sensitive information. 
People need to know if they should be getting access to it, right? Empower the people who know the data best with privacy tools. Don't make them build it themselves. But they will know best most of the time. But obviously provide them a path if they have questions or concerns. Finally, it's very easy for privacy concerns to become overbearing. If 90% of the time you reject use cases, right, if you're the legal or, or ethics or whatever, you will create shadow IT, and that is far more dangerous for legal and regulatory reasons. Look to exchange context and work towards a viable solution. Both sides are probably not going to get absolutely everything they want, but you can probably get to something pretty good. Extended summary for episode 159, focusing on the problems and business at hand in your data tool selection process, an interview with Brandon Bidell. So in this episode, I interviewed Brandon, who's the director of product at Red Ventures. I'd reached out to Brandon uh, after hearing him on the data engineering podcast and kind of talking about his process for uh, tool selection. I wanted to dig in a bit more. So Brandon started off with a theme he'd hit on multiple times because it's so important. Before proceeding on selecting a tool or solution, agree on what needs to be done and why. What will this drive for the business? It's easy to lose the forest for the trees, or even the leaves, in building out data platforms. The first part, agree, is necessary because you need alignment to move forward with the proper understanding of the problem to be solved. The what needs to be done and why part means there is a clear roadmap and that you have a specific problem you are trying to solve when doing your tool evaluation instead of focusing on the tool or feature. Having a maniacal focus on what does this drive for the business will mean you can align better on what is needed for a use case versus a Christmas list, as Brandon put it. Having clear and open communication about what is a requirement versus a desire and the cost of each potential item on a data consumer's list has led to a very efficient prioritization for him and his team. A key way of working when embarking on a new use case is to involve the data consumers early on and make sure they have skin in the game, according to Brandon. The team's the data team's engineering time being on the data consumers PL, you know, where they actually just charge the data consumers for the work. That means the data consumers are more focused on driving to key results rather than cool features or nice to haves. And having open and honest discussion about the expected costs to deliver on each really helps them weigh the benefits. An important part of getting to a good outcome in these discussions is understanding and attempting to align to on everyone's incentives. Brandon mentioned how when discussing cost benefits and different platform approaches, it's very easy to get overly complex. 
But that hurts the conversation and often devolves into technical discussions with people who care about the business output, not the tech. Brandon has two axes that he, he uses, complexity and value. Don't overcomplicate it. It's pretty easy to start with use cases that are high value and low complexity when you start to look at it through this lens. High value but high complexity use cases are tough but can obviously provide very significant value when you've taken care of the low-hanging fruit as well. But you know, obviously stay away from low-value, high-complexity use cases. One thing Brandon mentioned, and I recommend more broadly for data mesh journeys, is a decision journal. Having a place in the open where you write down the criteria for a decision makes it so people can feel more comfortable with the decisions made. What were the capabilities needed? What was, you know, what was the problem? What was the expected value? When getting down to the decision itself, how viable is the solution? What are the alternatives? What is the likely cost? What are the failure scenarios, etc.? It helps you to reevaluate in the future as well and have empathy with past decisions. Brandon has a list of many more crucial questions that he had talked about. Really interesting point Brandon brought up regarding writing out your decision criteria is what happens if it's wildly successful? What happens if the tool or feature you choose, whether build or buy, has 10x the expected usage? 100x? Are the unit economics going to be good or will this potentially cause issues and how do you plan to adapt? According to Brandon, looking at total cost of ownership not just the short-term or initial purchase cost, is crucial when selecting a tool. Do you need training to actually leverage the tool and manage it appropriately? Does it integrate well with your existing platforms and tools? Again, this circles back to value versus complexity. Cost should be factored into the complexity discussion. Brandon emphasized perfect is the enemy of good there is rarely rarely a good return on finding the absolute best choice. The real benefit is in avoiding the wrong choices. If there is a 5% better return on tool B versus tool A, but you had to spend months figuring that out, or what if it's like six different tools that you're looking at? That's not worth doing, right? As part of Brandon's decision journal recommendation, he circled back on a few other benefits. A big one is that people are more likely to be aligned with the decision if they can follow the logic. If it's just a choice, instead of seeing why the choice was made, there's often more friction and pushback. Also, it's easier to monitor if things have changed relative to your assumptions when you have your assumptions explicitly stated, correct, right? So having these assumptions on paper also gives you better buy-in to make changes because, again, people can follow the logic. When it comes to driving potential buy-in, Brandon recommends seeking out the people who are most likely to be detractors to your potential solution. Use collaborative negotiation. At the very least, go and understand their context and pain points. Try to incorporate that into your solution and look to align incentives where possible. Too often, people don't feel seen or heard. As many guests have mentioned, look to set your success criteria and especially ways of measuring before you start your implementation work. It doesn't have to be perfect, but otherwise you are able to measure 
you are able to measure when you are doing well, and you can learn from things that don't go to plan much better if you can measure against an actual plan. Brandon discussed how when you make a choice to go with a vendor, the you know the contract renewal or specifically a few months before the new renewal, is the time to evaluate if, if it was a good choice and if you should continue forward with that choice. You should set up an artificial timeline to do the same for anything built internally. Instead of waiting for signals that you've made a wrong choice, regularly reevaluate. It's important to reflect back and see if it's actually solving the challenges you wanted it to solve. Beware the sunk cost fallacy. According to Brandon, it's very common to want to, you know, continue on to chase things where you've already spent lots of time and or effort, or if it had a lot of promise and it's not meeting the the expectation. Don't throw good money after spent money. Take it as a learning opportunity and move on. Circling back on tool stewardship and total cost of ownership, or TCO, Brandon uses a framework of three main things to consider. Skills, governance, and controls, and the ability to measure. Do you have the people who can actually leverage a tool? Do you have the governance in place to use it properly? How will you measure if tools are successful and being used as expected? He had a lot of good examples in the episode about this. Brandon recommends people look into the anti-corruption layer concept from microservices in your data platform. Neil Ford had done a great uh, presentation in uh, mid-2021 talking about this as well. It can lower the integration costs and also make it far easier to rip things out if they're not working anymore. You don't want to focus too much on this, though, and never leverage proprietary features, right? You should be looking if, if there is proprietary features, that's fine to use those, right? You don't need to build every capability from scratch, but also don't unnecessarily lock yourself in. If there's value there, take it, you know, look at things from a perspective of, you know, does this meet my needs now? Will it in the future? And um, it's pretty easy to go down a bad path with lock-in, but it's also pretty easy to go down a bad path with trying to build everything yourself to prevent any lock-in. So some other tidbits in wrapping up, your business counterparts probably won't care much about which vendor or feature versus what it gives them. Start at the high-level mapping, you know, what's needed. You need to define the problem you are trying to solve, not the vendor. The vendor should not be defining the problems for you. People are only willing to deal with so much innovation. Think of having tokens that people that you collect from when you try something innovative and new. That's not an easily renewable resource. Look to what you have already to see if it will work instead of trying to solve everything with best of breed every single time. When thinking about maximizing value, there is always one constraint that is the bottleneck. You can optimize other things, but they won't drive the value find and fix the bottleneck. That's Brandon's view on it. I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I think it's important to put out there. Quote unquote, knowledge has a half-life. Decisions have a half-life. So, you know, don't get analysis paralysis. Look to move quickly. And finally, be willing to measure and iterate. Be willing to change your mind, especially based on new information. It's easy to get attached to tools or tech because they are cool. Don't. Stay objective.
Thank mm-hmm. you.